Hello and welcome to the Orient Express, a Middle East history podcast that breaks down the most important events and issues of the 20th and 21st century within the Middle East region and its particular countries. My name is William Strejek, and the region of Middle East became my area of study during my university studies of politics and international relationships. This podcast serves to present its listeners with valuable information regarding the historical development in order to provide a necessary background that might help you to better understand the present-day conflictual dynamics and developments in the region, its countries and societies. In today's episode, we are going to look upon the German expeditionary force in the Middle East during the First World War, and more precisely, to elaborate in detail upon the feelings and the impression of German soldiers that served in the Middle East during the Great War. So sit back and relax, as you are about to board yet another episode on the Orient Express History Podcast. The memories of the German experience in the Ottoman Empire during the war have echoes of a sideshow. Newly discovered narratives and memoirs of German soldiers bewildered by their counterparts in the empire draw attention as curiosities shedding light on German Orientalism. German technical advisors had been involved with reforming and strengthening the Ottoman military and training staff officers for almost 30 years since the early 1880s, especially under the influence of Kolmar von Delgoltz. His 1883 book Das Volk in Waffen, The Nation in Arms, had impressed a large number of Ottoman officers commissioned during that period, especially the staff officers. Under Wilhelm II, the emphasis on closer strategic and economic ties between the two empires intensified, including the launching of the Berlin-Baghdad railway. The German interest on Ottoman Empire eventually led to three visits by Wilhelm II in 1889, 1898 and 1917. The German military mission in the empire had been already active since 1913, commanded by Limann von Sanders. German troops were involved in Sinai region by the beginning of the war. In time, there would be both support units and the actual deployment of German soldiers, sailors and airmen, especially on the Mesopotamian front. After 1916, new formations arrived for the Palestine front, called Expedition Corps Pasha Ains, committing more and more troops there, especially after the capture of Baghdad by the British in March 1917. The bulk of the material for this topic originates from the officers and troops who were involved in the Heres Gruppe F, so-called Thunderbolt Army Group on the Palestine Front, deployed under the title Expedition Corps Pasha 2 from the late summer of 1917. Collectively, the German forces in the Ottoman Empire were known as the Asian Corps or Levante Corps. While smaller in comparison to any of the European fronts, the survivors among the German forces in the Ottoman Empire returned home after the war with a distinct understanding of their role in the conflict and appreciation for the region and its peoples. This distinct identity led to their own veterans organization, Bund der Asienkämpfe, League of Asian Fighters. While it played a lobbying role similar to many other such groups in the Weimar Republic, it had a unique membership composition and its publications reached a more heterogeneous readership than other veterans' organizations. This organization included many civilian members and affiliates, former imperial academics, bureaucrats and other employees whose paths took them to the Ottoman Empire before and during the war. 
It was the geographic connection, rather than military service, that created this distinct identity, one of which the membership seemed to be quite proud. At once a lobbying group for German interests in the region and a venue for reminiscence, the organization fulfilled multiple purposes and garnered a sizable membership. It continued to develop into the early Nazi era, with some of its members quickly attracted by the new regime. Yet the group's seemingly dated conservatism and the perceived lack of regime loyalty led to the eventual shutting down of the association's journal in 1948. The German contribution to the war effort in the Middle East can be divided into three broad groups. The first was the military mission going back to before the war, which performed the advisor and liaison roles and included at its height roughly 800 members in Ottoman uniforms. The second included a variety of technical specialists and experts in the fields such as rail transport, shipping and ports, signals intelligence and communications, field engineering, medicine, meteorology and air units. Some of these specialists were civilians who occasionally served in uniform in temporary capacity. The final group consisted of actual line troops, which included infantry, cavalry and artillery units in German uniforms as separate units within the Ottoman army. For the veterans who founded the organization Bund der Asienkämpfe, remembering the legacy of the campaign in the Middle East was a complicated affair. In the difficult year of 1919, the early members of the organization aimed to highlight the connection with the seemingly exotic foreign region with notions of community, sacrifice and comradeship, and the association, its activities such as reunions, regular meetings and its publications such as the journal and the yearbooks functioned as forms of memorialization. As was common in the early years of the Weimar Republic, many veterans of the war observed the new German political order with detachment or pure hatred. Along with the longing for past glory, there was also the desire to use the organization as a lobby for veterans' rights, as well as an interest group that focuses on the affairs of the contemporary Middle East. For many military officers and bureaucrats, Ottoman Empire and the Middle East had been a desirable posting location even in the years leading up to the war. The German military mission and the directly deployed troops both received many more applications than they could handle, a condition which increased once the hostilities began. The wish to be posted to the region was not only limited to the officers, even enlisted men or non-commissioned officers could petition to be sent to the Ottoman front. Many of the applicants listed future career or business interests as their reason to go. Once the actual deployments began, however, the difficulties were met. The lack of suitable printed material for training, manuals and language guides and maps hindered the effectiveness of the mission. Added to the situation was the prevalent Orientalist attitudes regarding the troops' expectations from the region and its peoples, with a wide variety of misconceptions and prejudices classifying the various ethnic groups in the empire. In this matter, it is probably safe to suggest that German officers and officials brought more complicated mental maps to the mission. The problems of staffing and recruitment were not idle worries, especially for the officers who had to train and prepare the troops for the arduous deployment. For example, Captain Simon Berhardt recounts how he was quickly disillusioned by the human material entrusted to him in the collection camp before the departure to the Middle East. He had been told of the upcoming deployment by a friend during a rest leave in the early summer of 1917. 
Having volunteered for the operation, he was assigned to a camp in Neuhammer, Silesia, preparing personnel for assignment in the ASEAN Corps. He quickly classified many of the men as adventurers and idlers who wanted to avoid service in the trenches and who hoped for war spoils from the Mesopotamian campaign. This observation also extended to the civilian personnel. After arriving in Anatolia, he notes with disapproval that it would have been much better to send more qualified people there instead of the common shipwrecked types, adventurers and profiteers, some of whom were already bankrupted at home. While in the camp, one of his major worries seems to have been to stop the men from cavorting with the prostitutes in town. Not only were the men not ready for the campaign, he also claimed that the provisioning for the officers was very weak and they had to procure geese and ducks, among other things, from local merchants to supplement their rations. The route of the German troops followed the same route covered by the Ottoman expeditionary forces deployed to Galicia going from southern German and Sudetenland through occupied Serbia and Bulgaria into the Ottoman Empire. The daunting task of transporting troops and supplies from Europe through the Ottoman Empire to the Palestinian front became clear as the German staff officers and organizers observed the terrain and technical difficulties. While participants such as Simon Eberhardt could reflect with cynical humor on the arduous process of loading and unloading pack animals or supply crates, it is in the accounts of the rear echelon officers that one can find the signs of the strategic and logistic nightmare faced by the expedition. The distance from the Haidar Passa train station, which was the starting point in Constantinople, to the front was roughly 1,600 kilometers. When calculated from Germany, it was about 3,000 kilometers. The route went across Asia Minor, crossed two mountain ranges, cut across Syria, and finally arrived at the fighting line. This reality made the logistic of supports a major headache for staff and supply officers. The expedition organizers had to contend with issues of single track or different width types of railroads as well as personal and quality control issues on the Ottoman side. When one added the losses through fire, theft, fresh goods going bad under the natural conditions and technical differences, reinforcement and resupply conditions became thoroughly inadequate for modern warfare standards. After the war, German experts who had been involved in logistics operations in the Middle East often returned to this theme of transport challenges. The strategic significance of railroads in the regions, especially observed from the angle of British and French dominance in the post-war years, captured the imagination of German former soldiers and officials with Ottoman service backgrounds. In these reports, with their coronal-like emphasis on what went wrong, it is clear to see the traces of frustration with the technical and human challenges faced by the expeditionary authorities. At the core of the transport hub into the Ottoman Middle East was the Hijaz Railway, extending from Damascus to Medina, which also had a branch line to Haifa. By the beginning of the war, the railway had roughly 1,500 kilometers of track. This was the network that carried the likes of Simon Eberhardt to the Palestinian front. The shortages of 1917 and onwards made running the railroad a problem in itself. Trying to burn wood in the locomotives caused a series of issues, chief among them the risk of flying spark fires. By the summer of 1918, fuel for lighting was a real scarcity. German officials supplied tar oil to keep the lamps on the wagon burning. All of this along with food supply problems, seems to have taxed the patience of German technical and logistics personnel all too accustomed to European peacetime conditions. Yet in their accounts, 
they do highlight the importance of cooperation with Ottoman mid-level officials and officers, even though they concede the damages caused by theft and desertion by 1918. One significant point in these accounts is the emphasis placed upon the quality of German-trained Turkish personnel, the hint of proud paternalistic superiority even present toward the junior allies, even if the fighting took place on their soil. For all the enthusiasm for the fighting elan on the Ottoman troops, officers such as Simon Eberhardt were also not immune to the general prejudices regarding the peoples of the Middle East. For example, soon after arriving in Constantinople, he reports being greeted by a German railroad official with a curt, Welcome to the land of filth. While Simon Eberhardt claims to have been shocked at this admission, he adds that he later agreed with the man's verdict that he saw the unquestionably big problems of Turkish rule in the region. On the more positive side, his account is also replete with detailed descriptions of stunning scenery throughout Anatolia, even if he claimed that his aim was not to write about the usual minarets and sunsets, but the views of the regular field soldier. Officers exhausted by the physical and technical demands of the expedition deflected their frustration to what they believed was the natural and cultural qualities of the Turk. Laziness, fatalism, living hand to mouth with no reflection for the future, primitive conditions figured all too easily in representative accounts. It is clear from such accounts that German officers felt uncomfortable dealing with the local conditions while also feeling professionally and culturally superior to their hosts. The decision to cut loose from the Ottoman supply chain seems to have been taken quite early on, with German officers and officials taking over the supply and logistics duties in the stations and waypoints through which the expeditionary troops crossed. The overall impression presented to German post-war readers was one of German ingenuity in the face of rather inhospitable, unhelpful and thankless environment. The challenges of the actual physical environment emerge most forcefully through the hygienic conditions of the region. Medical professionals attached to units or those seconded to Ottoman civilian installations began noting infectious enteric diseases among the troops as early as during the transport phase through Anatolia. Lice became a major issue due to the conditions in train transports. Both typhoid fever, relapsing fever and typhus claimed thousands of victims among the troops and the local population, which included a large number of refugees. Until 1916, the epidemics were difficult to control, and counting among their victims Kolmar von der Goltz and the German consul in Damascus. Dysentery and cholera made up the second group of diseases, which took a toll on the troops. In relation to the hygienic conditions, especially the problems with the quality of the water supply, German authorities were exhausted by the local living standards that echoed the biblical stories. Just as in the railroad officials' remembrances, the balance sheet of cooperation on the hygienic and medical fields was uneven. Ottoman physicians and officials, trained by Germans or other Europeans, received positive marks, while many of the other local personnel failed to impress the Germans. Regarding the German expedition, one could also find several analyses from the ranks of highest participants in the expedition. One such example was the experience of the General Gerald von Gleich, a Württemberger with a military pedigree, son of a general and a prolific writer on military and scientific topics, von Gleich had the unique background of both having observed the Ottomans from the opposing side as the German military attaché in Greece during the Balkan Wars and as the chief of staff of the Ottoman 6th Army in 1916, working under von der Goltz and later Halil Pasha. 
That latter fact made him a veteran of the successful Kut al-Amara campaign that shall be mentioned during the episode considering Mesopotamian campaign, and provided him with a wealth of first-hand experience about the capabilities and limitations of the German expedition and the Ottoman allies. Von Gleich's stockading of the expedition was quite direct. He is one of the few early commentators who designated the whole undertaking as a colonial war, regardless of the fact that it took place on the Ottoman territory. Partially, this was due to having the British as the opponent, but the colonial attitude also stemmed from the fact that the conditions, expectations and reality all depended on understanding that this was not the West, but some place else outside the daily normality of German fighting men. Von Gleich also underlined the Germans' own shortcomings in preparation, especially in the fields of printed material and linguistic competence. Coupled with these problems, the German bureaucracy's shortcoming, such as the mail taking on average six weeks to reach Germany and back, contributed to the mental discomfort of the German troops at the front. The calm and clinical observations of a commander with the caliber of von Gleich regarding the defeat and the collapse in 1918 were one thing, but the same experience reported from the perspective of field officers and the men serving at various locations of the front was a more emotional affair. Simon Eberhardt, for example, talks about the shock waves of British breakthrough in September 1918 and the spread of panic and resignation among the ranks. The air attacks, insufficient supplies and poor means of transport figure strongly in the last pages of Seymour Eberhardt's account, as they were probably experienced by many other troops at the front. The exit from the theater of operations and the retreat through Anatolia back to Constantinople are narrated as a series of deprivations and chance encounters. Finally, he arrives in Berlin in early October to a country in the throes of final crisis. Yet in his closing statement, Simon Eberhardt managed to add a note of proud remembrance as the expedition was poor in possessions but rich in experience and adventure. Overall, the German involvement in the Middle East was part of a much larger plan to extend Germany's influence at the expense of the British and provide the country with a colonial reach into strategic and economic greatness. The Germans clearly thought of themselves as superior not to only the myriad ethnic and religious groups of the Middle East that they encountered, but also to their Ottoman colleagues, including the officers. They were willing to concede the material qualities of the Ottoman fighting men, and they also gave credit to the abilities and courage of Ottoman career officers with whom they worked. But it is also quite clear that this was an inferior political entity to which their empire was allied, and its structural failing was often the result of what they saw as cultural differences. To them, this was an enterprise in an alien and exotic territory, fought against another colonial empire of Britain, and German technical know-how and cultural superiority should have eventually prevailed. As such, they were members of an elite undertaking, and as a result, they belonged to a special club of sorts. The fact that this formula did not work in the end is at the core of almost every narrative about this campaign. This relatively lesser-known expeditionary campaign in the war was no sideshow. It caused quite a high number of casualties, not just through fighting alone, but also due to the disease and adverse natural conditions. Like many other expeditionary operations before or since, they left their mark on the survivors, especially because of the perceived lack of interest by the general public on these specific fronts. The campaign also generated a large number of prisoners of war, whose fate became a concern to public at home. Finally, for the memory of the war, 
The campaign remains to be seen as a symbol of the needless sacrifice of fighting men in far-flung corner of the globe. Due to this reason, the German expeditionary campaign in the Middle East deserves more interest and further analysis of not just the actual tactical results, but also the perspective of social and cultural experience of the soldiers themselves. With that being said, we've arrived to the variant of this episode. As always, thank you for listening to the Orient Express History Podcast that aims to provide interesting and detailed information about the history of the Middle East. If you liked this episode, I will be more than glad if you leave a rating or if you share it amongst your friends or at social media. Also, if you found this episode interesting, you can also visit my Instagram or Facebook account called the Orient Express Podcast, where I am constantly posting interesting stuff related to previous or upcoming episodes, so if you're curious about the topic of the upcoming episode, don't forget to hit the like and follow button and share this episode amongst your friends. See you next week with another episode of the Orient Express History Podcast.